1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Welcome, everybody, to your podcast of music discovery. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, where you can pretty much find any music genre that you're interested in. There's so many unique podcasts on that site, I can't even go into them all, or else I'd be here all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just go to PantheonPodcast.com, check them out for yourselves. Uh, If you like our show, and you want to hear more of us, we also have a Patreon account. Yes, And for the low price of $5 a month, tell them what they get, Kyle. Great. That tier is called the Front Row Seats tier.
2: Uh, like Matthew said, it's 5 bucks a month. You get two-day early access to all the episodes. Uh, you get a shout-out on a future episode as a loyal producer. You get bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops, which are a lot of fun. Uh, and occasionally, you'll get some bonus content, such as unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny little tidbits that got cut out of episodes, usually because we were passing gas.
1: Unedited. Unedited. Unedited.
2: Unedited. For a little bit more than that, for 20 bucks a month, you can get what we call the Backstage Pass. You get everything included in the Front Row Seats tier, plus you get a very special personalized gift from Matthew and I, and the chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo on the album of your choice. Uh, This benefit only activates after one year of patronage at that tier, and it can only be activated once. Uh, And like I said, you get all the benefits of the Front Row Seats tier included in that as well. So if you are interested... Uh, in forcing us to review uh, Barney on Ice, the album, oh, uh, or you know something something equally horrible, uh, you can do it for only two hundred and forty bucks. So, yeah, uh,
1: I'd like to welcome our newest twenty dollars yes. a month subscriber, Mike from Michigan. Welcome, thank you. Uh, I guess we'll be expected to hear his choice for an album in about a year. Right, that'll be exciting. Yeah, today we are heading back to what I consider the sweet spot. Oh. Time-wise for our little program here. Okay. Uh, going through all the years we have focused on so far, 88, 73, and 91 seem to be our target years. 88 and 91 make sense for me anyway. Makes I was sense. 16 and 19 respectively, so those were huge formative years when it Wait, came said, to my identity.
2: You said 73 was the other one?
1: Yes. That's a bit of an anomaly. Yeah. Uh, as I was only one year old and you wouldn't <laughs> be born for what, 13 years? Nine years. Nine years? Uh, sorry, 11 years. 11 years. We'll get it. Yeah, uh, I can't do math. But the records that we've covered from that area uh, era are groundbreaking albums uh, that changed music as we know it, like Brian Yelbrick Road, Selling by the Pound, oh, okay. David this Bowie's Hunky Dory. Those things uh, around that time. Okay. Uh, so that explains a bit. For this week's episode, I decided to cover another female artist who released her debut record. Uh, this one in 1991. Uh, we are talking about Little Earthquakes. Tori Amos.
2: Oh man, and what an album you picked here. This I know. is a great album.
1: Deeply profound, in some ways disturbing, but all around magical record of intensely personal and private songs. Uh, it's long been a favorite of mine. Did you know this record before I put it on the schedule?
2: Not really. I I know that I've heard most of these songs before, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I've ever actually sat down and listened to Little Earthquakes like beginning to end as an album. Got it. Until I started researching for this episode.
1: And before we talk about this record specifically, we should talk about the artist who made it, Tori Amos.
2: Yeah, born Myra Ellen Amos uh, on August 22nd, 1963. Uh, Like Matthew said, she's an American singer, songwriter, piano player, and an activist. She was actually a child music prodigy. Uh, she taught herself to play the piano almost as soon as she could reach the keys, and she began composing instrumental music by age three. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could not use a diaper, <laughs> probably
1: by age three, but... She, uh, yeah. I don't think I did anything well at age three.
2: <laughs> she also uh, has that, uh, I, I, oh man, I was going to look up what this is called, where you can hear a piece of music... It's chromesthesia. No, not that. Uh, Synesthesia? No, not that. Where you can hear a piece of music and then immediately repeat it. Oh. So like you you can sit down and listen to somebody's song and then immediately play it on the piano.
1: Yeah, I don't know what that's called. I I was going
2: to look it up. Uh, I apologize. I I forgot and left a blank spot in my notes here. Ah. But uh, synesthesia, uh, like you just mentioned, she has described seeing music as structures of light uh, since her early childhood. Which is an experience consistent with a diagnosis of a chromesthesia, which is a condition where sound involuntarily evokes an experience of color, shape, or movement in individuals. And mm-hmm. that falls under the synesthesia uh, umbrella, which is where one sense being activated means that you experience another sense. Yeah. So there are quite a few people that apparently can taste colors. Weird. Which seems very bizarre. And there are also quite a few people that can smell colors. That's Which is
1: very bizarre. But uh, other composers that have had this include uh, Franz Liszt mm-hmm. and noted conductor Leonard Bernstein. Right. Um, and I think it's a fascinating phenomenon and it must light your brain up. I feel like it would be like being stoned on acid like all the time. <laughs> Obviously, LSD being a hallucinogen opens your brain up to these very sensory experiences when color and light are pronounced. Being able to see music would be very interesting, especially if there's no specific high involved. Tori Amos described it this way The song appears as light filament once I've cracked it. As long as I've been doing this, which is more than 35 years, I've never seen the same light creature in my life. Obviously, similar chord pro- progressions follow similar light patterns, but try to imagine the best kaleidoscope ever. After the initial excitement, you start to focus on each element's stunning original detail. For instance, the sound of the words with the sound of the chord progression combined with the rhythm manifests itself in a unique expression of the architecture of color and light. I started visiting this world when I was three, listening to a piece of music by Bella Bartok. I visited a configuration that day that wasn't on this earth. It was euphoric.
2: That is beautiful, and that sounds fascinating.
1: How cool would that be? Right? Every time you sit down to play a piece of music, you have this light show in your brain? I got to take a real quick side trip here. Yeah, to, yeah. And talk about Tori
2: Amos, all the quotes that I found, because I found quite a few of them. Yeah. Her way of speaking is very fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. I mean this with all love. She sounds like a drunk person (laughs) when she talks in interviews and things. Not like slurring her speech and things, but just the way her speech pattern and the way she describes things and the way she jumps
1: around a little bit. It's very eccentric. It's very
2: eccentric, but I I like it quite a bit. uh, It did make it a little hard to write down some of the quotes that uh, I saw in videos and and even written online when you would copy and paste them. Trying to read them back, I was like, "Right, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's it's fascinating to me.
1: A little bit more about her history. She yep. was born in North Carolina, but then moved to uh, Georgetown, mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. Uh, her family moved from there to Baltimore when she was two after her Methodist preacher father decided to move his ministry there. That sentence right there is very important. Yes, it is. As much of her music has religious overtones and not very positive ones when it comes to dealing with Christianity. Of more significance and influence was her paternal grandfather, who taught her a lot about pantheistic spiritual alternatives uh, to her father's teachings, and more specifically her grandmother's influence. Mm -hmm. And she was very strict, and she is referenced, albeit obliquely, Mm -hmm. in several of the songs on this record and other records down the road.
2: I've got a good quote about her grandmother in here a little bit later, too. Probably the same one you
1: have. Oh, I know which one you're talking about. (laughs) At five uh, at five years old, she became the youngest student ever admitted to the Peabody Conservatory of Music in Baltimore. It's a very prestigious institution known for churning out amazing classical artists and performers. Uh, Michael Hedges went there. We spoke about him on one of our mini episodes or Judo Chops. You can access that and all the amazing content for the very affordable price of $5 at <laughs> AudioJudo.com. Nice plug. Um, click on the Patreon link for more details like we talked about at the top of the show. One thing that stood out to me... When I was looking at the notable students of Peabody, Mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of Hedges and Amos, they were all either jazz or classical performers. There's no rock or pop anything Hmm. in there, which may lend itself to why she did what she did. At age 11, uh,
2: she was actually asked to leave. Her
1: scholarship was rescinded. uh, In what
2: Rolling Stone uh, described in an article as musical insubordination, Hmm. which I think is great. Um, Tori has said she lost the scholarship because of her interest in rock and pop music and her dislike of reading sheet music.
1: Right. And with that sound equals color business, who could really blame her to be bothered with reading music? Right. If I could see music like well, I don't want to read the notes if I got a whole light explosion in my head. So that hey, makes sense to me.
2: Hey, we know that you're a wonderful basketball player and you can do everything. We need you to sit over here and dribble the ball for an hour. Uh, yeah, we don't really want to do it. No, dribble, dribble, dribble the ball. All right, that's it. You're out of here. <laughs> uh. Uh,
1: so, uh, yeah. So uh, go ahead.
2: Uh, I was just about to say uh, shortly after that. In 1972, they moved to Silver Spring, Maryland, which is uh, a little ways outside of
1: Baltimore. Because mm, her father relocated his ministry again.
2: Mm-hmm. And about that same time at 13, she began playing piano at a local gay bar and a local piano bar uh, chaperoned by her father. Mm-hmm. Which um, I immediately was like, wait a minute, a minister took his daughter to a gay bar to play piano. Mm-hmm. I know. Scandalous. Scandalous. I know. Right. But uh, obviously not the type of minister that I'm familiar with. So, uh,
1: No. But it was- what, a- Supportive or- Tolerant. Which which word are you looking for there? Which one are you not familiar with? I think. Or is it both?
2: Well, I, I read somewhere that he was considered a, a liberal minister. Mm-hmm. And to me, that uh, it was very, um, those two words don't normally go together. No, they don't. So uh, that was very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I think in this situation, it was probably more of a tolerant, personally, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Who knows?
1: I, I was just, I was just asking that you know try to yeah. get a reaction out my of
2: it. my personal yeah my my personal thing is you know like i said liberal minister does that mean you know, where does where does that term fall on the spectrum of i don't know burned it, at the stake or have equality
1: mm, <laughs> somewhere in the middle i guess technically burned under
2: the stake but that's so, <laughs> a, i'm not going into that
1: by the time she was 17 uh, she had made a ton of handmade tapes of her songs and her father encouraged her to send them out to record labels Producer Narada Michael Walden Hmm. responded, and they recorded some demos together back in the early 80s, uh, but they were shelved. Uh, He is known currently as the drummer who replaced Steve Smith in Journey when they fired Steve Smith in 2020. (laughs) Uh, Eventually, her tapes reached the desk of an A&R guy at Atlantic Records who made the rare uh, occasion of hopping on a plane, flying to Baltimore to watch her perform, and eventually signing her to the label.
2: Yeah, that would be a Jason Flom. Flom.
1: Flom. Uh, in 1984, she hopped on a plane to the West Coast to pursue her dreams. Uh, before this point, though, she had been performing using her middle name, Ellen. One of her friend's boyfriends told her she looked like a Tory Pine, a tree native to the West Coast, and she adopted the name as her stage name. Not sure why. Yeah. He said she looked like a pine tree. Insult or compliment? I don't know. May have been high <laughs> at the time. It's kind of possible. Like, I, I. I looked it up. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna find I'm gonna I'm gonna Google Tory Pine and it's basically gonna be a picture of Tori. Oh, it's just a tree. Yep. Oh, never mind then. Sometimes you just say stuff to people. Yeah. And it has Weird. nothing to do with anything. So in nineteen eighty six, she formed her first band, Why Can't Tory Read? That is the letter Y and K A N T. Right. Named after her inability to sight read music. Um it's a joke, you know. Yeah. No apostrophe. Uh,
2: that is also called uh, a prima vista, which oh. I think sound makes it sound way cooler.
1: What the joke?
2: No, the ability to uh, sight read music. Oh, you found it? Yeah. Uh, no, this is different. This oh. is a uh, this is if you can take a piece of sheet music that you've never seen before, put it down in front of you, pick up an instrument, and start to play that piece of music.
1: I've always been envious of people that could do that. That is
2: called a prima vista. It's nice. Which is a very wonderful phrase, I think.
1: So, uh, so apparently, Tori can't read. And she also can't spell. Apparently not. Uh, Joining her in the band was Steve Catton, who would remain her guitarist until 1999, bass player Brad Cobb, keyboardist Jim Tauber, and drummer Matt Sorum. Matt Sorum would find significant success as the second drummer for Guns N' Roses and the drummer for Velvet Underground. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012 as a member of GNR. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Why Can't Tori Reid produced one album, the 1988 self-titled Why Can't Tori Reid? And it is an awful piece of synth pop garbage. Oh, it is terrible. It is so not good. Tor-
2: Tori actually said of the album, quote, the only good thing about that album is my ankle high boots. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, it's, um, it's a sad sort of story that she, this prodigy who could make amazing music, but she trusted the music companies again, and they were like, so what's popular right now is right. synth pop. So we're going to have you make some synth pop, and we're going to pair you up with some people that are going to make a synth pop record, and then it's going to suck. And then we're going to blame you for it sucking, because you're the
1: child prodigy. You should know what's happening. Exactly. The, the label, she she says the label sunk it. Yeah. Um, but if you look at it, the album has Paulina da Costa on it, on percussion. Drummer Vinny Kaluta. Half of Cheap Trick plays on yeah. almost all of that record. It's Completely soulless, and the cover features hair, a hair-teased Amos in heavy makeup, clearly a label trying to capitalize on the hair metal of the day. Yeah. Uh, the album was a commercial disaster, but the one thing it did do was become a major collectible. <laughs> Once Tory's career took off after the si- success of Little Earthquakes, copies of this record could fetch $300 to $800. And now with the rise of digital, those copies are now 50 to $80. But if you got one, <laughs> hold on to it. You never know when that vinyl market makes a comeback. Right? Right. So, huge failure. But Amos still has a six-record deal with Atlantic, and they wanted a new record.
2: Yeah. And in 1989, mm-hmm. mid-1989, they said, we want it by March 1990.
1: Correct. Because
2: <laughs> her last album had taken almost two years to make. Uh, Why, Tor- Why Can't Tori Read took almost two years. So, suddenly they were like, nah, you've got seven or eight months.
1: <laughs> so, she recorded a bunch of songs, and the original versions of that record were declined by Atlantic mm-hmm. Records. They, they said, take it away. get it. We don't want it. And so she took it away, expanded it, thickened it with new sounds, new musicians, new producers, and it became this record, Little Earthquakes, her solo debut. So the album was released on January 6th, 1992, at the absolute exploding moment of grunge. Yeah. Current number one when this was released, Nevermind by Nirvana. Yep. Uh, They could not be more opposite-sounding records, uh, but they were both alternative records signaling a significant shift on the horizon for all music. Uh, Do you have any of the sales details? I do. It
2: peaked at number 14 in the UK and remained on the top 75 UK albums chart for 23 weeks. Uh, In the US, it was slightly less successful. It reached number 54 on the Billboard 200. It was number 14 on the Australia albums chart, the ARIA chart. In the long run, though, this album has done very, very, very well. Uh, It's double platinum in the US, so more than 2 million copies sold. Uh, It's gold in the UK, over 100,000 copies sold. And gold in Australia, Belgium, Canada, and the Netherlands, which most of those are 100,000 albums. I believe Canada and Belgium are 50,000 albums, but still pretty good. Uh, In 1998, Q Magazine readers voted Little Earthquakes as the 66th. Greatest Album of All Time. And in 2002, the same magazine named it the fourth greatest album of all time by a female artist.
1: Right? And it's no me- it by no means is a slouch when it comes to other critical reception. No. In 2000, it was voted number 73 in Colin Larkin's book, All Time Top 1,000 Albums. In 2020, Rolling Stone named it number 233 on its top 500 greatest of all time list. But it wasn't without its detractors. Mm. Our old friend, Robert Christigau <laughs> liked one song on the record, The Acapella Mean a Gun but said the other stuff was just someone, quote, trying to sound like Kate Bush.
2: Yeah, I believe he gave it a
1: bomb. I really can't emphasize how much I hate this guy. Seriously. (laughs) Tori Amos has said repeatedly that, of course, Kate Bush was an influence, and if you are influenced by someone, there might be remnants of their sound in your sound. It's inevitable. But if we discounted everyone's music that says they were influenced by the Beatles or had some melody or sounds that were reminiscent of the Beatles, then there wouldn't be a lot of music left to listen to.
2: Well, even John Lennon said the way that he created songs a lot of the times was he would hear another song, say, wow, I wish I had made that. He'd sit down and start figuring out how to play that and then come up with a tune that he would be like, oh, I really like this. Let me work on that. And then he'd write a
1: song based around that tune. Right. Like that's so music critic yeah the only thing for me to do is to be critical see i don't want to be a music critic i want <laughs> to be a music encourager i want to find reasons for you to go out and listen to stuff and then make the educated choice about whether or not you like it or don't i'm never going to say i'm never going to be the guy that says stay away from this shit because it might sound like kate bush except maybe for oasis <laughs> but even if that's not true because at the end of this episode i did find a couple of reasons to listen to it. Even in the o- Oasis, I found a couple of reasons to actually listen to it. Fair enough. And then still go out and make your own choice. Don't give these asshats a voice. Call me Matthew, music encourager. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the best review you need to hear, in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Justin Timberlake said that this album changed his life. Quote, it is so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Right? That's JT says it. It's got to be true. Right? So, cover art?
2: Yeah. So the front cover is just a picture of Tori Amos crouched down in a wooden box Mm -hmm. uh, with the side open so you can see in. Um, There's a tiny piano at her feet, and she's standing with her arms braced against the front of the box like she's about to climb out. Uh, Across the top, it says Tori Amos, and on the bottom in tiny letters, it says Little Earthquakes. Mm -hmm. The back cover- Uh, I don't want to mess around here. It's uh, two penis mushrooms Mm -hmm. growing out of two vagina pods.
1: Mm -hmm. Phallus impudicus mushrooms. Yes. Uh, uh... Also known as stinkhorns, (laughs) which happen to look like giant dicks. Yeah, they really do. Um, That's the only way I can really describe it. Phallus impudicus. Phallus for dick. Mm -hmm. Impudicus means shameless or immodest. So it means giant dick and it's a stinkhorn. It stinks, and it is known to grow four to six inches an hour. Whoa! And it exerts enough pressure when it's growing to sufficiently move asphalt. Wow! And it was long thought to be an aphrodisiac because, of course, it was.
2: Of course, it was.
1: So it's uh, all the dick jokes I got tonight. I there's think, a
2: uh, there's a nice track listing on the back there too. I don't think anybody's ever seen it. I I don't think anybody's ever actually looked at the track. I forgot thing.
1: to bring it down. I, I have the CD
2: upstairs. Oh. <laughs> I should
1: have brought it. I might need a minute alone.
2: <laughs> uh, a couple of big dicks. Great. Uh, Art direction and photography by Cindy Pal- Palmano. Yep. Uh Who did a lot of photography? To- who did a lot of photography for Tori Amos over the years? Um, she's also worked with bands like Pet Shop Boys, Head, XTC, Killing Joke, The Pogues, and a bunch of others.
1: She also directed four of the music videos yes. for this record.
2: Uh, the design of the cover jacket was by Alan Reinel. Uh, who would go on to design four more of Tori Amos's album covers, um, and the lettering by Will Wentworth. That's right. Back in this time, you had to hand letter these kind of things. Did you say Will Wentworth? Will Wentworth. Yes. Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton. Will Wentworth. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you had to hand letter these. Of course. You couldn't just Photoshop it. You couldn't just type it in. What? Tori Amos, little, little earthquake. He had to work. Select a font. Somebody actually had to hand letter it. And S- this is the guy that did it. I thought that was, I saw that credit and I was immediately like, I got to bring that up. You because, have to.
1: Hand lettering is right? important.
2: Should we uh, Should we take a quick break? And Not yet. Oh,
1: you, you got something else. Yep. So for me, I'm going to tell you why I chose this one. Because I figure we should address it now. So for me, I came across this record at the exact same time that Nevermind was popular. Uh, I found it the exact same way. They played the video for Silent all these years on MTV's 120 Minutes, of which I was a constant watcher. <laughs> and I was taken aback by her sensuality and the way she communicated the lyrics. The music was beautiful, like a music box. And the lyrics were weird, they were interesting, they were captivating, but also they were raw in a way I had never heard before. Uh, I had listened to plenty of punk females over the years, uh, sing stuff that was sexually charged or abrasive, names like Wendy O. Williams from The Plasmatics blondie to some degree susie from susie and the banshees even madonna for all the controversy she brought talked about sex but there was something very different at work here this was not sensuality this was raw honest almost too real sexuality and she was saying things uh the guys wouldn't say about real stuff and there were times when i listened to it that you you felt a little dirty you felt yeah. like you were you were you were seeing you were a voyeur you were seeing something you you probably shouldn't see or I didn't want to see it like it was reserved for personal listening best, you know. And I think that's what made it so important to me. It was one of the first albums I really shared with Heather as we started dating in March of 92. Uh, this record and the Cure's Wish, uh, Cure's Wish album. And we used to listen to this record over and over again. And I would have thought it would be disconcerting to listen to a record so emotionally charged and vulnerable with someone. But it was binding and it was cathartic and mm. it was vital for my life soundtrack. And that's why I picked it.
2: That's a great reason to pick an album.
1: That's what I say. But now we should take a break.
2: Sounds good. We'll be right right back.
1: Don't Smother Nature is a one-stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more Earth-friendly a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at DontSmotherNature.com. That's DontSmotherNature.com. We're back. Uh, Crucify. Crucify. Every finger in the room is pointing at me. The opening lines to the record and to this first song is immediately a powerful statement. I was 19 when this came out, and I think we've discussed ad nauseum my faith struggles often enough on this show. Indeed. uh, But it is a major thing in my life, and it was no different at this time. I was jaded, disillusioned, confused, kind of lost, and that opening line is exactly how I and a lot of people my age felt at that time. This was the fifth and final single from the record. Uh, It got to number 22 on the alternative chart in the US and 15 in the UK. It was naturally labeled a blasphemous song because of the title and the obvious religious connotations scattered throughout. How dare she compare herself to Jesus, (laughs) the harlot? It's clear, like most blasphemous, blasphemous songs, they don't dig any deeper than the shallowest of layers yeah the song is clearly about self-hatred and the expectations we put on ourselves but it's sacrilegious kyle looking for a savior in the dirty streets looking for a savior beneath the dirty sheets oh, mm. disgusting yeah looking for salvation anywhere and this song got banned in the bible belt mm-hmm. for obvious reasons this song is about shame it's about guilt apparently guilt is not something reserved for the catholics Hmm. I guess the Protestants feel it too. Who would have thought? Got enough guilt to start my own religion. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard that line and just laughing out loud in my car. It's rare for a lyric to connect so directly and quickly, but it was tapping into something. Musically, it's pretty great. It has a couple of mandolin and ukulele tracks that mm-hmm. give it some added color, and the production of the song is wonderful. Uh, one of the co-producers on the song... And a lot of this album was Ian Stanley Mm -hmm. Ian Stanley was a member of Tears for Fears Through the 80s and co-produced And co-wrote some of their 1985 album Songs from the Big Chair You can find all about that on Episode number 52 from this very program
2: Wow, you even had the number ready to go Oh, I was ready That's impressive
1: And you can certainly hear his influence on this record and song Here's a little bit of it right here
2: So like you said obviously the title's a, a a reference to her religious upbringing it's also sort of a reference to her being in that position to everyone point the finger at her for the failure of her initial album mm-hmm. and she has also said that it's sort of the um uh the idea that every time she would stick up for herself everybody told her stop you know trying to crucify yourself stop trying everybody that cared about her i guess i should say told her stop trying to crucify yourself stop trying to you know Throw yourself on the sword for this one. Mm -hmm. You failed. Pick yourself up and start over again. Um, From the Little Earthquake songbook, she actually said, quote, Bells started going off every time I wouldn't stick up for myself. I accepted Quasimodo was a squatter in my cerebral area. There you go. A rhythmic pattern kept chasing me around. I dug out the drum machine and put the pattern down. I would leave that pattern on for hours while I just sat and argued with myself about stuff. The first music to get put to the pattern was the B section of this song. I've been looking for a savior, a door opened and the demons started to show up.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm glad you got, you pulled, you probably pulled a lot of quotes from that song. Songbook. I did. Yeah. And I avoided it. I read them all, but I avoided it. Cause I kind of figured you were going to head down that the road. The
2: second I saw that songbook, I was like, Oh, I got to quote a bunch of this. Cause that is straight. Not only it's not her giving an interview. It is her knowing she is putting these down to specifically go mm-hmm. with the album. And to me, that's like the most primo Best possible source you can have for stuff like
1: this. Couldn't agree more. But she also said this, she, you know, this song was born out of the depths of the failure yeah. of Why Can't Tori Read? And she wasn't used to failure. And so she wrote this. She said, I'd been a child prodigy. From child prodigy to vapid bimbo, I think was one <laughs> of the quotes. It was a galaxy apart. So I had to put the pieces back together because I hadn't been used to being a failure. So I think that's. A wonderful song to start the record with. Yeah. And you knew uh, the very first time you put this on that there was something special here. It just, you know, when you put a record on, you know, you don't do it anymore, but dropping the needle and within the first little bit, you're like, oh, I'm already bought in. Yeah. I'm completely bought in. And that's how I felt.
2: That I definitely feel like is one of the things that has been lost in so many people no longer making an album, making songs or EPs instead Mm -hmm. that are just a collection of like, here's five songs I rolled out over the last couple of months. Um, And I think that because it's not put together as a cohesive thing, you don't need that first song hook anymore. You don't need a song that's going to tell you, hey, this is what the album's about in the first 15 seconds of it. Right. And I think that's kind of sad. I think we really lost something with that.
1: Well, yeah. And the, and this is, a, it's a statement. This is, this is a, this is like a, a diary instead of one excerpt of a diary and throwing, you know, throwing it out for people to listen to. This is the whole thing. Yeah. This is the entire diary and it's good. It starts off that, it starts off great. Yeah. Girl. Girl. Song was written on a shitty upright out of tune piano at her parents' farm in Virginia <laughs> uh, and is absolutely a song about. Mm Self-identity. You've been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day you'll be your own. Clearly sick of playing music or doing anything for anyone else. She was trying to get to a place where she could be her own artist. Popular women at the time, Tracy Chapman, Mm -hmm. Melissa Etheridge in the folk areas, Kate Bush in Electronica, and people weren't really doing intimate piano music anymore. So she had quite the road ahead of her, but there's a lot of determination uh, in there. I also think people can look to overly sexualize her lyrics because some of them are. So if some of them are, people suppose that all of them are. Uh, there's a lyric in this song that goes, I've cuts on my knees as the winter takes one more cherry tree. So many, many people, uh, well, I saw many places. I saw people interpreting that line as she was given a blowjob and the cherry tree is symbolic of her chastity. And I'm like, what? Oh, what? Um, I don't think that's a sexual lyric at all. Don't get me wrong. She has plenty of them. Uh, But this isn't one. I think she has cuts because she keeps falling down.
2: I could definitely see that. She keeps
1: trying to do the stuff that's meaningful to her, and she keeps falling, keeps failing. But she hasn't stopped trying, but it's driving her mad. As we see by the end of the song, she speaks of white coats and sitting in a room and doing what she's told. And I think all of these songs, besides being totally confessional and vulnerable, are also therapeutic for her uh, as reminders of where she's been and where she would like to be.
2: See, I definitely think if you take this song on its surface, I can see not necessarily the sexual representations, but I do think that on its surface, this is meant to represent that concept of a a girl who, on the surface, is trying to pr- project this innocence, this you know, oh no, I'm 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 you know a girl, I I, I don't do anything you know inappropriate or whatever. But right. underneath, she is becoming a woman; she's becoming an adult and she's not so innocent anymore and i think that there's even a way to read into the song that eventually she gets pregnant and that concept where you were just talking about the men in the white coats come in mm-hmm. um the lines are uh, sit in the chair and be good now and become all they told you to or i'm sorry and become all that they told you the white coats enter the room and i'm calling my baby calling my baby calling my baby calling my baby mm-hmm. i think that could be someone going through the idea of you know, a lot of times when women got pregnant, and still to this day, when women get pregnant, if they're a deeply religious person or, you know, socially they can't project that image, mm-hmm. they go and they have an abortion. Right. Um, and I think that that could be what she's singing about here. Not necessarily a personal experience that she had with this. right? But it definitely is a, a possibility if you read it on the surface. And then I do think there is that deeper reading that you're talking about mm-hmm. where she's using that surface reading to say— Everybody's thinking this about me, that I'm some kind of, a, I'm projecting the innocence, but I'm actually like a bad girl. Mm-hmm. But really, here's what's happening underneath it all. Mm. And I think that on top of that, there's some references in here. So bluebells, she brings up, mm-hmm. which are associated with fairy tale, fairy tale enchantments. God, mm-hmm. that's hard for me to say for fairy some Fairy tale reason. enchantment. Fairy tale enchantments. Uh, in some European cultures, if you hear the ring of a bluebell, you will be visited by an evil fairy and then you won't live very long. Uh, They also represent humility, purity, spirituality, and everlasting love and gratitude, Mm. which kind of fits here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And cherry trees are associated with the strengthening of love, stability, new beginnings, and of hiding the inner self from the outside until you can't
1: anymore. Well, that's very specific.
2: As in the idea of cherry blossoms, because if you look at a cherry tree before it blossoms, it usually looks... Not dead, but bare, I mean fairly bare and, yeah. and kind of like an ugly tree, and then it blossoms, and it's this beautiful thing I like that, so uh, those two call outs in particular stand out in the song mm-hmm. as kind of odd, they don't really fit with a lot of the rest of the song, and that's why I looked those two up, and I was like, oh yeah, those kind of fit with both of those readings of the song in my
1: opinion. I like that hey give it a give it a listen
3: and miss the. The vessels are burning in my heart, and as I twist, I hoot.
1: guitars, expertly played by Steve Catton on this track. Like mm-hmm. I mentioned at the outset, he played with Amos through the late 90s and then moved on to a career in graphic arts and design, specifically in the surfboard industry, which is oddly specific, but not the first time we've encountered a designer from the surfboard industry.
2: Yeah, uh, who else was that? I can't
1: remember. I tried to look it up and I couldn't find ah. it. But it must be a burgeoning place for graphics work. Yeah. Kind of mm. like skateboards. It- interesting. Oh, you got more about this? Song? No,
2: that's that's uh, pretty much covered everything for me.
1: Silent all these years.
2: Silent all these years. The piano in the song is so good. I know.
1: This is a song that broke Amos into the public eye. Second single from the record, eventually reaching number sixty-five on the Billboard Top One Hundred, number twenty-six on the Adult Top Forty, and number twenty-seven on the U.S. Modern Rock Chart. Not a huge hit, but big enough to elevate her career. Yeah. And I'm sure you found a lot of the same research I did about this song. She wrote the song for another artist, Al Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when she played it for her then boyfriend Eric Rossi, who produced a number of songs on this record as well, uh, but not this one, he told her that it was basically her story in a nutshell. This was her song, so she kept it and recorded it.
2: Yeah, he said, "Actually, you're out of your mind. That's your life story." Yeah, <laughs> which I think is great. That's a... what are you? You're mean? out of your mind. That's your life story.
1: I remember when I first heard it. Like I mentioned at the uh, at the beginning, it was on an episode of 120 Minutes on MTV. And can you imagine for a second seeing? Smells Like Teen Spirit, and then seeing this video back oh, wow. to back, because I did. <laughs> you know when your dog looks at you and then cocks its head to the side like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. That's what I felt. <laughs> Two Polar Opposite Could Not Be More Different If You Tried songs, both of which I loved. It's like... Huh? What? what? Uh, and this is really where that uncomfortable sexuality becomes very apparent to me. If you listen to the lyrics, boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yikes. Uh, and it's unfortunate that I would be that surprised for a woman to deal so directly with that in a song. But yeah, it was eye-opening because message received. <laughs> there was no vagaries about what she was talking about. And then you read that. What she had to say about that particular line, it's even more woe. She said, in most people's songs, men are always potent. Women never have their period. Rapes, non-existent, and orgasm, vaginal, or faked. They're Barbie doll songs. Songs without pubic hair or obvious genitals. They don't fit anatomically. My songs come rather from my womb than from the heart. You know, there's some fucking going on in other people's songs, (laughs) but no one ever gets into an unwanted pregnancy. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I saw that quote. That's so good. And then you go one extra step and wrap this song in this gorgeous musical dressing. It becomes even more disconcerting. And I think that's one of the things I love so much about it. It was completely unexpected and uncomfortable. Reading so much about this song, it seems like it's broken up into three main parts. The opening verse is about her grandmother. Apparently, uh, she hated her grandmother. Oh, yeah. And used to punish Tori when she showed the slightest interest in the opposite sex. That line, I've got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. That's her grandmother. (laughs) Wasn't a good relationship. Uh, The town that her grandmother lived in in Virginia banned this song because of the Antichrist reference.
2: Of course they did.
1: The second part, which has the boy you best pray... In, in it, it's more about a failed relationship. And the third is about the more successful relationship. And the whole thing plays out like a woman who was kept from searching out relationships, then getting burned by one, and then finding a good one. So Tori describes the song as, quote, her baby, because it's the one that she can always go back to when she's struggling. Uh, it's the song that gave her her success. And unlike a lot of artists that run from that song that brings them success, she's embraced it. It sounds like this.
3: So you found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts What's so amazing about really deep thoughts Boy, you best pray that i bleed real soon How's that thought for you? My screen got lost in a paper cup I Think there's a heaven where some screams have gone I got 25 bucks and a crack do you think it's enough? get us there cause what if i'm a in these jeans of his with her name still on it but i don't care cause sometimes i said sometimes i hear my voice and it's been he silent
2: Tori called that piano that she plays there the bumblebee piano She referred to it as, quote, the Bumblebee Piano Tinkle came first. This one evolved slowly, but it stayed an obsession until it was finished. I entered the boxer occupation, part of me not wanting to hear what I was saying, the other part fighting off the brain drain. I finally distracted the brain drain with the task of filing chocolate cake recipes. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but it (laughs) sounds great. Uh like I said, her, her quotes are fantastic, but uh, they're out there. They're very out there.
1: You have more about that? Uh,
2: that's pretty much all I've got. I know that like, uh, uh she has also said that this song was specifically about uh, people in her life, not understanding what she was trying to do
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the work she was trying to create and telling her, you know, Oh, you need to go in this direction. You need to go in this direction. And her being quiet and taking it again mm-hmm. back to why Tori can't read or why can't Tori read, Her saying, okay, well, let's do whatever you guys want to do and not speaking up and saying, no, 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 I don't want to go in that direction. I want to make the music that I want to make.
1: The whole album is that self-discovery, self-motivation, reasons to get up and continue to do what she's doing and do it the way she wants to do it. Uh, One of my very favorite parts of the song is the very gentle finger symbols that decorate the song. (laughs) And I know that I've done this uh, before to you, Kyle, uh, but I dare you to listen to that song now and not hear the finger symbols. Yeah, now
2: that's all I'm going to be able to hear. It's
1: like pointing out the triangle. Yeah. Now you will hear it for the rest of all time. And woodblock go. You're welcome, <laughs> world. Precious Things.
2: Precious Things.
1: And she comes off the heels of that beautiful song with a little esoteric lyric to a much darker song with a little more in-your-face sexuality than before. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song is much darker, both musically and lyrically. It was uh, pr- one of the songs produced by her then-boyfriend, Eric Rossi. According to her, she wrote the song when they were both ill somewhere on the Rockies, uh, in the Rockies on vacation. She had a fever dream situation; melody just appeared, and I absolutely love the sound of the song. It's ballsy and it has some punch to it. Uh, lyrically, it is very much on theme with the rest of the record: themes of sexuality and, to some degree, some revenge. This is clearly about being uh, her being mistreated, as so many young girls are by high school boys. Mm-hmm. Add in the Christian boys, and yeah, they're even worse. Uh, The line in here that always sticks out, you know, Yeah. so you can make me come, it doesn't make you Jesus. That one stands out every
2: time I hear this song. I'm like, oh God, I forgot that was in here.
1: First time I heard that, I said out loud, oh my God. (laughs) She just, uh, she goes for it. Right. And that attitude that a boy would get a Messiah complex because he was able to sexually satisfy a woman and now they owe him something. That is so overt. This this is what uh, she says about that part of the song. She says, just because I'm with a man and because I'm creaming for a man doesn't make him a master, (laughs) doesn't even necessarily make him worthy of love or of my love. And now I realize maybe for the first time in my life that my capacity for love is incredibly deep and that for me to give this to a man, he has to fully understand and respect what that means. Too few do. They're into pillaging, rummaging around, doing a little Viking stuff. But most women these days realize that's not enough. And if some women don't, then I hope songs like "Precious Things" will help open their eyes and just as importantly, help open the eyes of some men. And this wow. is what the song sounds like right here.
3: We'll be a six, six, holding on to his picture, dressing up every day. I want to smash the face
2: So Tori said of this song in her uh, episode of VH1 Storytellers, quote, Precious Things is a song that came to me when I was living behind a church originally, and I was about 24 years old. I had a roommate that listened to really raucous music, and it started to take me into flashbacks of my grandmother. And she used to put me in a corner, and she would read me something, I think from Leviticus. I can't remember. But she was convinced that I was going to give my soul to God and my body to a man that I would marry. But at five years old, I knew that we were enemies. So in my mind, I was always trying to find ways to get away from this creature. So I thought of things and my mother thought I was a demon for thinking them, but I think she would smile out of the corner of her mouth because I think she felt the same way. So behind this church with this music going on and on in my head, I started to really think that maybe just one day I could run a little faster. Mm. Back to her horrible sounding grandmother. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) just, I mean, she refers to her here as this creature, Uh uh, huh. uh, Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then, so besides the boys that she goes after, she doubles down and goes after the girls in high school. Why not? Who also treated her like shit. Remembers being at a dance in a peach party dress, looking at all the pretty girls. And of course, they all turn away from her with a great line of the fascist little panties tucked inside the hearts of every nice girl. (laughs) That they all have these mean, ugly streaks in them, and there's such brutal honesty in this record, and that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. Uh, she says a lot of things other people have always wanted to say, but we're always too afraid to say it. And the music is awesome, so that helps.
2: That uh, line about fascist little panties <laughs> totally reminded me of... Uh, I did not go to my 10-year uh, high school reunion, mm. and uh, a couple, Neither. one of my friends did, and apparently there was this girl that uh, had been a very... She was like a goth in high school. I honestly did not remember her at all. I don't think I ever really interacted with her. But uh, apparently, she totally called out. Like, she stood up in, in the middle of the dinner when everybody was like, let's talk about who has good memories of high school. And a couple of people stood I'm like, you remember the big game? You remember this? And apparently, she she stood up and absolutely called out everybody. Like, literally, people by name. Awesome. Like, Tony, I remember when you did this, and that was a real shitty move. And like, <laughs> when you did this, that was a real crappy move. And But- Apparently she quoted Tori Amos a couple of times. And I was like, that's amazing. I don't know if it was this particular line, but I could totally see it being that exact line. It's a
1: lot of empowerment there. Right? I love it. Winter. Yeah.
2: Matthew. Winter. It's a sad downbeat song Tori wrote about her father.
1: This album benefits from one of the things that we talk about all the time. Really good song order and pacing. Yes. From the backs Of a very raw and exposed song like Precious Things comes this intimate beauty of winter. It's such a beautifully constructed song. And and while some of the other songs are about self-expression, self-identity, self-worth, this song is about self-acceptance. And like you said, written like a discussion between a daughter and father. The endless refrain of the song is, when when are you going to make up your mind? When are you going to love you as much as I do? Apparently, that stems from a discussion that Tori had with her father. Mm -hmm. After the failure of Why Can't Tori Read, she was apologizing for the failure. And he said to her, Tori Ellen, when are you going to accept that you are good enough for you? And I think that has to be a huge watershed moment for any kid to hear. Right? You spend a lot of time looking up to your parents and wanting to make them proud. And when at the end of the day, all we parents really want is you to be happy and happy with yourselves. We accept you. We love you unconditionally, and you have to get to that point on your own about yourself. But we believed in you all along, and this is what it sounds like.
3: When
2: I do like that she's very honest in this song about the fact that you know parents aren't perfect. Mm. They make mistakes. They they screw up sometimes. There's you know like a lot of times. Like everybody always says, you know, there's no manual. well oh, you know, well, you're, I'm making you're, this up as I go along. It. And I, I think that that's cool because so infrequently do people call it out that way. They either say they either blame the parents, like, well, you're a real screw up, and I hate you for that. Or they gloss over it. And Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that she straight up calls it out and says, no, no, they made mistakes, but they tried their best.
1: I think that's very important. I think uh, another underlying theme in this song is that bit of loss when kids grow up that we all feel, but there's always a place for you at home. She dresses it in discovering boys, you know? Mm -hmm. Kids get other interests. And they're no longer dependent on their parents to be their number ones. And it hurts. But you're happy that they're growing up, but a little bit of you dies inside. Yeah. But you know, should they ever need to come home or just talk, there's a fire in the fireplace, there's a drink on the table, and just come sit with your old man and talk about anything. And it's a pretty special song. And it has a mirror song a few songs away. Yeah. I've always loved that song uh, just for that, how intimate and delicate it is coming out of that like <laughs> abrasive song.
2: Yeah. And it definitely, like you said, the pacing, if you looked at it, just as those two songs, it doesn't fit, right? But in the whole album, it fits great. It's it's a definite slowdown. Mm-hmm. It definitely pulls your emotions and everything back down to lead back into the next song, "Happy Phantom."
1: Happy Phantom. With this is uh, one of my least favorite songs on the record.
2: It's very, it's a very weirdly happy and upbeat song about dying.
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And I just, I don't care for the melody all that much for some reason. You know how some songs land and some, even on records that you love, just do not. And this is one of those. It's, it's, it's cute. It's quirky, but I don't love it. Yeah. It has some lovely hammer dulcimer work by Eric Williams. And lyrically, there's a lot more metaphor in this song than in a lot of the rest. Uh, And that is saying something because there's quite a bit in the rest as well.
2: Tori has basically straight up said, this song is all about having to kill her younger self. In Order to move forward,
1: right? And it's very death of her previous image, exactly. Yeah,
2: and there's not, I mean, it's it's very obvious when you hear that that oh, yeah, that's what this whole song is about.
1: Yeah, have a listen.
3: So if I die today, I'll be the happy down and I'll go where my is like a jewel. they will be my together to the universal opera. There's Judy Garland taking boo- we sell them little men get up to dance. They say Confucius does his crossword with a pen. I'm still the angel to a girl who hates to sin. Woohoo! The time is getting closer. Woohoo! Time to be a ghost. Woohoo! Every day we're getting closer. The sun is getting dim. Will I pay for who I've been?
2: It sounds like the opening number to a Broadway play about dead people. Yep. Like it really. <laughs> yep. woo-hoo,
1: Here comes the whole cast. You know, the whole cast is dancing across the stage dressed as ghosts. Uh, there are a couple of my- lyrical moments that I just don't get. Uh, the first is Judy Garland taking Buddha by the hand. Maybe because Judy Garland led a messed up life and perhaps Buddha could give her some peace. Maybe. Uh, and the only place something like that could take place is in heaven or. Confucius does his crossword with a pen. That one makes a little more sense, implying that he's so sure of his answers that he doesn't, doesn't need to, need erase, to erase anything. Erase them. It's an interesting song. It's not my favorite though. China, though,
2: China—it's a very good song.
1: Yeah, we go from one of my least favorite to, uh, on the record, to absolutely my favorite, both musically and lyrically. It's such a great song uh, and is pretty much a straightforward love song. Yeah, about a decaying relationship. She uses the word China in such great ways both as the country and how her partner is unreachable because he has built the great wall around him. And also as China for table settings, Mm -hmm. China decorates our table. Funny how the cracks don't seem to show. That's just wonderful.
2: Yeah. This song always reminds me of the song Fernando by ABBA. For Mm -hmm. some reason, they kind of sound similar to me. And Mm. I don't know every time I think about it for some reason, I don't, I don't know why.
1: Now I'm going to have to go listen to Fernando. I'm sorry. All right. Now I have to go listen to ABBA tonight. Brrr. I'm
2: sorry. Uh, this was originally titled Distance, uh, and it was the first song Tori wrote for mm-hmm. Little Earthquakes.
1: It has this beautiful understated bass line by Matthew Seligman. He's best known as the bass player for the Thompson Twins. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ended up becoming a human rights attorney in his later years. And unfortunately, he succumbed to COVID-19 last year at the age of 64.
2: Oh, that's too bad.
1: Um, but this song is such a beautiful expression of that feeling that couples sometimes have when their partner is literally sitting right next to them, but you can tell they're a million miles away from you. There's no lonelier feeling in the world than that, being next to someone you love and that person not present at all. And here's a little bit of it right here.
3: China. waiting
2: Catch all the Tears for Fears connections here. Uh, produced by Ian Stanley. Yep. Chris Hughes on drums, Ross Cullum did some mixing, and Will Gregory from uh, Goldfrap fame plays the oboe on this, and he played the sax on uh, Songs for the Big Chair.
1: Ah, oh, Goldfrappy. Songs from the Big Chair. Goldfrappy. Goldfrappy. That's a nice connection. Right? Like that. Amos has stated repeatedly that she probably wrote this song after listening to Barbara Streisand for an extended period of time. Oh, you can you can feel that. And of course, because no one can break your heart like Babs can. Nope. Leather. Leather. Good gravy. The opening lines on this one.
2: Look, I'm standing naked before you. Don't you want more than my sex? I can scream as loud as your
1: last one, but I can't claim innocence. Wow. <laughs> it's a song that's seemingly about some kind of uh, dominatrix Great right? stuff. I mean, uh, even Tori has said that strippers repeatedly come up to her and say that they use this song <laughs> in their pole routines. She, she, I love that she called it the other entertainment industry, too. That
2: was great.
1: And sometimes, like you said, when you read her answers to questions, they are about as impenetrable as her lyrics can sometimes be. Uh, she said she wrote this song trying to find her shadow portions, and that she had written about being crucified by her sexuality, and it was very dark. And she had really discovered she hadn't really discovered her erotic sexuality yet. I get that, and I understand what that means, but I don't really know how it relates to this song. I'll just give it a listen right here. Oh.
3: Oh God, why am I here if love isn't forever And it's not the weather, and be my leather I could just pretend that you love me The night would lose all sense of Me. you can hold what I hold dear.
1: It's kind of a quirky little swing to yeah. it. And she's belting it. Because if you listen to it in a really good set of headfo- headphones, her voice clips the mic a couple times. Yeah. And it must have been good because they didn't take it out. They just went with that. She said, uh, for all the time she's spoken about this song and what it means, she said while on tour in 96 that this song is not about wild sex.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She said this. I was living in a rundown apartment in Hollywood when a so-called friend <laughs> stopped by to borrow sugar. Who does that?
2: People still do that? Apparently, back in the 90s, they still there, I guess technically in the 80s they still did. That's weird.
1: Uh, when the singer played her an offering from Little Earthquakes, the woman told her it wasn't catchy and she should consider changing her writing <laughs> style. After she left, Tori wrote Leather in 8 minutes.
2: Which another uh, another example of a, an amazing artist. They just needed that right inspiration, right time, and they can just sit down and and oh, blast yeah. one out.
1: By the way, this is a song. Blast is, out a song. This is a piece of shit. You should uh, probably just give up.
2: Yeah, I, would, then- I wouldn't keep going. Bring well, it. you know what? Screw you. Borrow some sugar, my ass. Borrow sugar. Look, I'm standing before you naked. Boom, boom, boom. who does? Also, I don't. I don't care what anybody says, Matthew. The cigar is a penis. She's talking about a penis when she does the whole, you had a big old cigar. Oh, that's a penis. penis. That's a penis. I don't care what
1: anybody says, that's a penis. There's penises on the album cover. There's penises kind of strewn throughout the whole- Right? That's a penis. The whole record, so I'm going with penis.
2: And now that we've mentioned penises,
1: let's talk about mother. (laughs) (laughs) Is this some sort of Oedipus move? Maybe.
2: Uh, Uh, From the Little Earthquake songbook again, Tori said, quote, mother came on a bit like a dream sleep. It was early morning when I made the way to the piano. I knew that they were trying to show me something, a memory of the fall. Uh, Not the one we've been taught, but the other side of the story, which is the belief of certain ancient mythologies. Mother changed me because I began to remember where I believe we come from.
1: What? Yeah, right? So I mentioned earlier, Winter has a mirror song, Mm -hmm. and this is it. Yeah. Uh, This song is about the relationship he had with her mother which wasn't quite as evolved, I'd say, as the relationship with her dad. The song is quite beautiful. Another one of those songs that from the very beginning just kind of sweeps you away. It's also the longest song on the record running Mm -hmm. almost seven minutes. Uh, And she has said over and over again that the song is not just about a mother and a daughter, but also a Mother Earth situation. And I think that is towards the end of the song because the beginning – is straight up those parts of daughters leaning on mothers before the alienation of adolescence comes along and blows that all to smithereens. I love this song so much. Uh, Back in olden times, I made a mixtape. I used to make mixtapes for Heather all the time when she was (laughs) going through a difficult period with her parents, and all the songs either had mother in the title or were based on parents. Oh, cool. And this was right at the top because it's so good, and it sounds like this.
3: You raised your hand for the assignment Tuck those ribbons under your helmet Be a good soldier first My left foot, then my right Behind the other Pantyhose running in the
2: it is a very beautiful song, and I think that it's a uh, a lot of its meaning is probably lost on us, as we are not <laughs> daughters of mothers. Uh, you know, true story. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I feel like it has more significant meaning to people who fall into one of those categories. Sure, it's not insignificant to me. I love it. It's a good song, but
1: um, but but uh, so she has said that it's about those moments when you split yourself. Uh, you want to make your parents happy, but you also want to honor what your beliefs are. Um, and I've talked about that before, and it's huge, especially when you grow up with the guilt complex that comes with being in a ra- raised in a house that focuses on religion. Um, I also love that the song is just voice and piano. Yeah. a dean? It doesn't need anything else at all. Um, have you ever? Did you watch any videos of her performing while you were doing a research? Few, yeah.
2: I did not watch any of this particular song, but she
1: has a very unique way of playing the piano. Yes, she does. She basically straddles it. Mm-hmm. And while the piano is set to the side, she still f- tries to face the audience with her legs kind of over the bench. It's very sexual. Yes. Very interesting. Uh, but she pours everything into those live shows. It's quite something. If you have a chance to see her, you uh, absolutely should. Yeah. You have more about Mother?
2: No, that's that's about it. That's all you got
1: about Mother? Mm-hmm. tearing your hand?
2: Tear in your hand. Uh the blueprint for this, as we talked about earlier, you know, musicians do not live in a vacuum. They are influenced and inspired by a lot of other things. The blueprint for this song was "Scarborough Fair" by Simon and Garfunkel. That
1: makes sense. Uh, she
2: said she said as much in an interview with Keyboard Magazine in 1994, hmm. which I think is, is fascinating. And once you know that, you absolutely hear it in this song.
1: Hmm. It's it's probably the most straight ahead song on the record. It follows mm-hmm. a pretty normal song construction, or unlike a lot of the other songs. But the lyrics at times are kind of impregnable. You know, they don't make a lot of sense. In several interviews, she has indicated that the song is about nostalgia and looking back at past and failed relationships. But isn't isn't most songs about that? Yeah. Strange references, uh, references like Charles Manson and I like the same ice cream are part of those lyrics on this record that I could do without because they're just so obscure and it's hard to make sense of that point. Yeah. She also references Neil Gaiman. Yeah, this and, is the first time too. And the Dream King. Mm-hmm. Which is a little easier to rectify, because she was apparently reading the Sandman comics at the time, of which Gaiman was the creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he heard the reference, contacted her, and they've been close friends ever since.
2: Yeah, she's actually referenced him quite a bit in other songs, like uh, Carbon Hotel, Not Dying Today, Space Dog, and apparently others, but uh, I couldn't tell which others. that's,
1: so. that's It's super cool. Um, and the song contains one of the best lines on the whole record. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's just pieces of me that you've never seen. Ooh. That's just really good stuff, and here's what it sounds like. excellent song
2: it is it's my favorite on this album is it really yeah I, I don't know why i just i like it
1: i like that i like that that you have a favorite yeah uh but it's the relative calm before the storm
2: oh my god because
1: the next song is the song we need to talk about yes it is me and a gun <sighs> mm-hmm. first single go ahead yeah you have something uh, to say let's
2: let's not beat around the bush with this one yeah uh, this is a song about when tori was raped at yeah. knife point when she was 21 years old correct it is an acapella song yep so it is just her singing. It is incredibly difficult to listen to. Yes. Uh, it is very raw. It is very real. And like you just said, this was the first, uh, not solo, uh, single.
1: It's the first single. It's the first single yeah. from the song. And it didn't chart. Not surprising. Yeah. When you realize it is an a cappella song about rape. Yeah. More specifically, about Tori Amos's rape. Yeah. It's intense. Uh, I would say there are no songs about rape you want to listen to true but there are some songs that are easier to listen to than this one namely hold her down by Toad the wet sprocket yeah or sex type thing by stone temple pilots and the reason that those songs might be easier to listen to is because there's music involved there are parts of those songs when you're not entirely sure that you're listening to a song about rape but not this one this one is as raw and as vulnerable as you could possibly get in a song it's just a voice and just her truth like you said she was 21 She was playing at a bar in Los Angeles, and she was leaving. She was approached by a man who was at the concert, and he said he was stranded and needed a ride home. She obliged, and she was raped repeatedly at knife point in the back of her car. While the song says, me and a gun, it was actually a knife. The song describes the scene and what goes through her head during the experience. She talks about the biscuits in Carolina, or never being to Barbados. And I'm sure that those are the places her head went to block the trauma and the reality of that horrific experience and she also questions whether or not she deserved it in the song because of the top she was wearing yeah and the song is just so hard to listen to but that's that's the point right that's yeah. great art right i do think that like like i
2: said this is not a pleasant song to listen to no but it's not supposed to be no it's supposed to give you an emotional response it's supposed to make you say oh my god that's horrible i can't believe that happened to somebody
1: it, it's it's Incredibly challenging, and it makes you hyper aware of all the women who have unfortunately had to undergo that type of abuse. It sounds like this.
3: 5 a.m. Friday morning, Thursday night, far from sleep. I'm still up and driving. Can't go home, obviously. So I'll just change direction Cause they'll soon know where I live And I wanna live Got a full tank and some chips With me and a gun And a man on my back and I sang, holy, holy, as he buttoned down his pants. You can laugh, it's kind of funny, the things you think in times like these. Like, I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of this.
1: Raw. Yes. Exposed, still hard to listen to. And she said about this experience, and bear with me, it's a bit of a long quote, but I think it's important. She said, I'll never talk about it at this level again. But let me ask you, why have I survived that kind of night when other women didn't? How am I alive to tell you this tale when he was ready to slice me up? In the song, I say it was me and a gun, but it wasn't a gun. It was a knife he had. And the idea was to take me to his friends and cut me up. And he kept telling me that for hours. And if he hadn't needed more drugs, I would have been just one more news report where you see the parents grieving for their daughter. And I was singing hymns, as I say in the song, because he told me to. I sang to stay alive. Yet I survived that torture, which left me urinating all over myself and left me paralyzed for years. That's what that night was all about. Mutilation. More than violence through sex. I really do feel as though I was psychologically mutilated that night and that now I'm trying to put the pieces back together again. Through love, not hatred. And through my music, my strength has been to open again to life. And my victory is the fact that, despite it all, I kept alive my vulnerability. I mean, it is unbelievably brave to talk about it all. Yeah. But to talk about it like this and then sing about it on stage multiple times and keep reliving that trauma is remarkable in its own right. Right. I remember the first time I heard this song, and it was overwhelming the way it should be. Uh, I know there are a ton of people out there who have gone through this type of nightmare, unfortunately. And maybe you are wondering uh, what to do if there's anyone to talk to and how to process it. And yes, of course there is. You can contact RAIN, which stands for the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, and their hotline is 1-800-656-HOPE. You can also find them on their app or through their chat. It is 100% anonymous, unless you don't want it to be. And I encourage you to get help and to talk about it. Tori Amos was the first official spokesman, spokesperson for the network. So, oh, cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough song to get through. Yeah. But is the benchmark of the whole record. Yes. It, I mean, that's the linchpin that holds the whole thing together.
2: Uh, little Earthquakes. The title track wrapping up the album here.
1: Another song with full instrumentation. Another song that deals with coming to grips with uh, who she was and getting ready to move forward. Uh, it's a full song. And some of the repeating lyrics act like a bit of a chant or mantra and those repetitions help you to make some of that your truth and assist in manifesting its reality you know the more you say something the more you the more you'll begin to believe it uh, and she repeats the line give me life give me pain give me myself again over and over again so many times you know we try to run from pain but dealing with it processing it moving on from it is so much better than trying to escape it altogether and the song sounds like this and
3: I hate, and I hate. Hey, 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 hey.
2: a rare uh, saw played as an instrument in this Ooh. by Jake Freeze. Uh, uh the last thing I want to do is probably a good closeout to this. Yeah. So uh, you got anything else about this song?
1: Uh I was going to say that uh, there's things in the lyrically in the song that I never got clarity on. She says I hate dis- I hate disintegration watching us wither and it's capitalized in the lyrics It makes me think she is talking about the album Disintegration by The Cure. <laughs> um which would make me sad cuz I love that record too. Right. Um no, and that's about it.
2: So this is my last, uh, my last quote from the Little Earthquakes songbook. Oh, okay, about this song, Tori said, "My eye twitches sometimes. I was surrounded by the thoughts I smash. They decided I would make I would be a good dinner. I decided I wanted three bridges in this song, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's Little Earthquakes. Uh, uh, yeah. I don't, uh, uh, I don't get that. Yeah, that's a little bit of a weird one, but I liked it a lot. I decided that I wanted three bridges in this song, and she got it. Yeah, she did."
1: It's still one of my very favorite records, and I think a very important one. Uh, The sensitivity, the raw way she dealt with some very heavy topics is so impactful. And as a young man of 19, when it came out, it was very important for me to hear. Please, if you've never heard this record, I hope hope we've given you enough reason to check it out. Yeah, it's Um, it's very
2: good. I think everybody out there should listen to it at least once.
1: And if you know it, go listen to it again, maybe with new ears, perhaps. Uh, If you want to tell us what we did wrong... You can get a hold of us on our socials.
2: Yeah. Uh, we are at audio judo on Twitter at audio underscore judo on Instagram and facebook.com forward slash audio judo. You can also email us directly info at audio judo.com. We do both get that on our phones. So it comes up almost instantly. If you really want to bother us. Yep. You can also check out all of our previous episodes. If you go to audio judo.com and, uh, or sign up, uh,
1: subscribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have episodes coming up about Def Leppard, Queensryche, The Doobie Brothers Mm. and Jethro Tull. So I know my prog fans will be happy for that. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, though. Bye-bye. And take care, everybody.
0: Achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. What's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would shop? Would shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> my mom and my there From Airship